I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. up on this week's show, NBC upsets soccer fans with their coverage of the Old Trafford fiasco. Latest news about acquisitions of Euro 2020 and Copa America rights. Fubo TV shares initial details about World Cup qualifiers. And your feedback in the listener mailbag segment. I'm Christopher Harris, aka The Gaffer, joined alongside my co-host Kartik Krishnayar. Last week, we had a, a ton of feedback from you, the listeners. We had you take over the show. And then this past Sunday, I, I wasn't expecting it, Kartik, but maybe, maybe you were. I mean, you might have been more plugged into this one. But, of course, the invasion of Old Trafford, both outside and inside, by supporters. Did you, did you have any inkling that something like this was going to happen? Yes, uh, but my expectation was it was going to take place outside the hotel and that uh, the Manchester United team would not be able to get to Old Trafford because the supporters would be protesting. They, they always stay at the same hotel the night before a home match at Old Trafford and that they would be protesting uh, outside that hotel and there would be an effort to stop uh, the buses from going and then to also kind of enlist the players on the side of the supporters. Uh, that, to my knowledge, didn't happen or uh, or maybe the the plan changed that was the the intelligence the reconnaissance i had gotten on on saturday uh and cl- very clearly uh the, the actual demonstration was at old trafford not at the team hotel uh but uh maybe there were protesters there too and 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 it didn't matter because once you've invaded old trafford the bus doesn't have a place to, to get to anyway, so you don't have to stop the bus physically from leaving. Yeah, so so for any listeners who tuned in to uh, NBCSN on sa- uh, Sunday morning, they would have seen, uh, like like I would have done, um, a lot of outside scenes uh, from outside Old Trafford uh, an, uh, an hour before the kickoff where there were fans starting to, to circulate. There was a, uh, a planned uh, demonstration at a specific time uh, before the match. And, and you could see the hundreds and then the thousands of fans uh, coming towards the stadium. And then Newcastle against Arsenal kicks off and we begin to watch that game. And... This is the part I thought the NBCSN did a great job of. It was uh, uh, Arlo White and Rebecca Lowe reporting and saying, like, hey, there's a big story going on. 
and it was Arlo White doing a play-by-play, not of the game, not, not of the Newcastle-Arsenal game, which had uh, a different commentary, which had a wool feed. But he was already there with Lee Dixon inside Old Trafford. And he was doing a play-by-play of the fans coming into the stadium. It's like Arlo's reporting as it's happening and then Rebecca uh, filling in the, the blanks and, and also asking the questions and trying to get a reading of what was going on. And I thought they did a really, really good job of a live breaking news story that was developing uh, in front of their eyes. And uh, NBC, SN had the split screen between uh, Newcastle and Arsenal on the right. And then on the left hand side was Old Trafford. And for moments, actually quite for a lot of time, actually during that uh, that first half, um, it, it, it took over the, the game. There was, uh, it was, okay, Newcastle, Arsenal, let's put that to the side. Here's what's happening. Fans running onto the pitch. And uh, I mean, kind of all, all of the, uh, everything that happened after that. So Kartik, I, th- I think... I think you and I both agree, and and you wrote a, a more detailed piece at worldsoccertalk.com dot com that um, that t- talked about the good parts and the bad parts of NBC's coverage of what happened. Um, that's the good news. I think the good news is is that they were reporting. They had first people inside the stadium reporting as it was happening. It was breaking news. It was actually pretty exciting to watch what was developing. But what about the bad parts? What what parts do you feel that they they fell down on? We get to 11 a.m. Arsenal has defeated Newcastle. The, uh, the, the pitch has largely been cleared. The uh, vandalism or destruction or whatever from uh, the more rowdy of the protesters has, has happened and has been caught on camera and has been uh, aired on both Sky and NBC, both who are, of own, are owned by Comcast. So at that point, NBC is doing okay. Then they decide to analyze the situation, Chris. And I can't stress, I, I, I think I've made my views very clear on Twitter and in the article on World Soccer Talk. I'll repeat some of it here. Uh, they were, to, from my vantage point, very one-sided, very, uh, uh, very anti-Manchester United supporter, very uh, judgmental about the supporters, very dismissive of, of, uh, of the goals of the, uh, of the supporters and of the protests, I think uh, overly deferential and overly favorable towards the ownership of the Glazer family. And I, I don't know if I need to repeat on this show what the Glazer family have done to that club. And, and you know what's funny, Chris? There are a lot of people who in the last two days now assume I'm a Manchester United supporter. I loathe that club in, from a football standpoint. I mean, my entire life, they've been one of my le- – the club I always I, – I, uh, just reflexively rooting it, root for whoever is playing them, right? Mm-hmm. Even in the late 90s, I tended to – I'm a Manchester City supporter for those who don't know. But uh, we were down in the second division. We spent a year in the third division actually, 98-99 season. I would reflexively root for Leeds or Arsenal or Liverpool or Chelsea or whoever was the biggest threat to Manchester United so they wouldn't win the league. I do not like like that club from a football standpoint. But um, that, that does not uh, – <laughs> that does – that does not mean I don't respect the heck out of the history of that club and do not think and I believe they're one of the great British institutions like the Beatles, like uh, like, like James Bond movies, like Rolls Royce cars. They're one of the great modern exports from that country. So to see NBC treat their supporters, the people who are actual stakeholders in that club, whose heart and soul belong to that club. The way they did, and take the side of an ownership group that has been nothing but bad for that club, 
and I know there are a lot of people who, who want to push back against that that narrative. Mostly people in the United States, by the way. Very few people in other uh, uh, other places. Uh, I I was really uh, bothered by it. Now now you can you can you can present what you think might be the good that the Glazers have done and what the Glazers have done as custodians as the club that might be positive. But then you know balance it. And they didn't. Well, they didn't talk about the. Go ahead. Go yeah, ahead. I was just going to say that that was the issue that there was no balance. So, so it was as the live things were happening. Okay, so now now we know what's happened inside the stadium, and at that point, you would expect a at least a balanced debate about um, about what happened. And it it was Rebecca Lowe and the two Robbies that came out completely against what had happened. It said, "This is you mean." Uh, basically inferring that this was uh, hooliganism or, or kind of definitely kind of touching upon that saying this is a disgrace this is an embarrassment these are things that we should not be seeing this is disgraceful those types of things and it was really unbalanced in terms of their opinions yeah. but, but if, if that's their honest opinions that's okay but what how what, what, can it be their honest opinion well no it, I, I, no it, it is i mean i'm sure i'm sure that's their honest opinions kartik but 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 the thing is, is that it shows me how out of touch they are with the, the football supporters, with the with the fans. Okay. Yeah, then that explains it. Then yeah, because that, that's not hooliganism. I mean, I don't know uh, what, what what they were thinking. And then the the, the fact is, Rebecca Lowe uh, seemed on Monday to feel like it was really reprehensible that United supporters wanted to have the match called off because, of course. Uh, Media rights holders, this is the biggest match in English football, right? Manchester United versus Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so for media rights holders, it's, it's, it's a devastating thing. Let me put, let me try and explain to those who may not understand what's gone on in the last 16 years with Manchester, Manchester United sports. And again, as a city supporter, I have a uh, – maybe we could call it the love-hate relationship with them. I, I hate that club. I, I, I loathe that club as a fo- as a football you know on, in footballing terms, but I have a real respect for the club as an institution and a real respect for their supporters. Really, uh, I, oftentimes those of you who follow me on social media have said I wish our supporters behaved more like their supporters. So, um, so, 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 so let, let me explain this. Yeah, yeah I was yeah. going to say like why should, I, I ex- why, why why should NBC uh, SN be criticized for what? The, well, what they okay, said? let me explain. Two thousand five, the Glazers buy the club. Manchester United has not been in debt. Uh, they have been, they have been completely debt free from ni- from nineteen thirty one to two thousand five, under ownership based in the British Isles, whether it was in uh, England specifically or in Ireland, uh, but in the British Isles. Two thousand five, there was a leverage takeover by by these Americans, the Glazers, who are just looking at the club as an investment. They know it's the most it's the it's the biggest commodity in global sports, Manchester United, and and they they have a leverage takeover. They pile debt onto the club, and since then, not only have they continued to pile debt on the club and have to spend money servicing that debt, but they have also taken dividends out each year to pay themselves, which uh, was not discussed on NBC. Additionally, there have been peaceful protests starting in 2005 when they bought the club. There were Manchester United supporters in 2005 who quit the club, formed their own Phoenix club uh, that had to start in the bottom of English football. Because in England, you don't, you don't, can't just buy a first division club like in the U.S. So uh, they had to – FC United and Manchester had to start at, at – at, 
at the low point. It's a membership-based club. They're now in the seventh tier of English football. So they've worked their way up over the course of, of – of, uh, uh, they didn't end up launching until like 2008. So they – they uh, 13 years or whatever, they, they, they climbed a couple divisions. Then in 2010, you had the Green and Gold Movement, uh, which was a – very visible protest against the Glazers' ownership. And okay, so part of the narrative on NBC and also, quite frankly, in the British press, it wasn't just uh, in, 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 on NBC, was, well, this is happening because Manchester United's not winning league titles anymore. Well, that's not true. 2005, they were still winning league titles. Uh, 2010, they had just won three league titles in a row. They'd, they'd been in two Champions League finals in a row when the green and gold movement really kicked off. Um, and they even had David Beckham supporting them. Peaceful protests, trying to force the Glazers to sell the club, trying to get some sort of uh, progress towards Manchester United being returned to either local ownership or even to fan ownership, to 50 plus one. There have been co- constant uh, cries of that since 2010. There have been visible comments and uh, editorials and um, fan perspectives represented in the media by Manchester United supporters since 2010. Now we come to 2021, the Super League thing happens, and this, this is, the, this is uh, the next step. Given that they have peacefully protested, Chris, and I'm sorry if I'm coming across as really strident about this, but given that they have peacefully protested and tried to do everything they could to get their message out for 16 years, it has had no impact. The the, the backs have been turned on them by, uh, you know, leading uh, people in the Manchester United community. Sir Alex Ferguson has never uh, uh, lifted a finger to, to, to support the supporters. I, I saw Peter Schmeichel today on CBS. I mean, that was pretty, I uh, was very uh, pleased that Jamie Carragher uh, uh, yeah, we'll dealt get, with that. We'll get, and we'll talk about we'll that, get that in a minute. Yeah, yeah. But the point is that they I don't know what else they could do. So basically Rebecca Lowe is 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 giving this patronizing tone uh tone. Oh, they were seeking to have the match uh uh, uh postponed because um Jamie Jackson from The Guardian did an interview with the, the leader of uh, Manchester United supporters, and uh, he basically said the leader that the idea was to make sure this match wasn't played. And she's acting as if it's this this international tragedy, like like a murder or something. I mean, the reality is, what else could they do? They've done everything peacefully for 16 years. They have formed their own club. They have had a massive movement, and nothing has happened. Uh, the club has gotten in worse and worse shape and more and more debt. So, um, I, you know, abandoning a match is, is not it's not like killing someone. Having a match postponed, so I, I I stand in full support of what they did. Now that's my opinion. That doesn't have to be the opinion of the people on NBC Sports. The, but what they need to do is represent um, sequentially, like I just did, uh, the, the 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 more broad perspective as to why it got to this point. They didn't do that. Danny Higginbotham, who is a obviously former Manchester United academy product, did try and do that on Monday, but. Um, wasn't quite able to get the message fully out. But Sunday, they didn't, they, didn't, they didn't represent this at all. They didn't explain why this was happening and why Manchester United f- supporters feel so strongly about the Glazers. Yeah, there, there were several things that NBC said, uh, especially on the Sunday broadcast, um, after the live reporting, when they started to analyze the situation, that really I, I was like just taken aback by what they said. I mean, some of the things, yeah. including, for example, Arlo White saying that this is nothing to do with the European Super League, which is absolutely ridiculous because that was the tipping point. Man United fans have been protesting for many, many years, but that was the tipping point. Enough's enough. 
the fans decided to do something uh, much bigger. And this is what they did, whether you like it or not. But it did work in terms of uh, making this a prominent story, making this the biggest story of, of the week in the football world that where everyone's talking about it everyone's discussing it discuss, discussing it talking about the 50 plus 1 options and talking about the government getting involved it it succeeded yet yes in that uh invasion into uh old trafford where they, they there's those talk i don't even know if they broke in but there was talk about uh like uh, the stewards leaving uh gates open to let them in but Yes, there were a few drunken idiots in the stadium that kind of uh, got most of the limelight and the attention. The, the one guy who threw the tripods and lost his sneaker and the steward handed him the sneaker, which is pretty ridiculous. But but we should remember that this there, there was like thousands of fans outside the stadium um, and, and then hundreds inside. And they got their point across, for sure. The other thing that NBC sa- said... Um, over that uh, that Sunday, especially, was just Rebecca Lowe came off big time as being a, an elitist, as yeah. as being somebody who is backing management, backing the corporate side to seem to be completely out of touch with what the fans are feeling. And um, no, so you, you don't have to be a Manchester United supporter to respect what they're doing. That they're fighting against. Um, the ownership they're trying to get their club back to try to be their own club have their own identity and it's the same thing for the Arsenal supporters um, last week who protested um, so on and so forth there's other clubs too so NBC in terms of just the way they positioned it just it came off on Sundays just being completely out of touch with soccer fans and, and how they really felt and siding with corporate yeah and Chris we're talking about supporters, the lifeblood of the sport and the people who at least in theory are watching them and are are, are the reason they pay the big bucks to be rights holders, right? Football is nothing without the fans. That's a cliche. We keep hearing that. But I and we'll get into this in a minute. I, 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 I think that there is a different element in American fandom. I don't want to get too deep into this. We got into it two weeks ago, right, about the Super League. But there's a different element in American fandom that maybe NBC in their defense thinks that they're appealing to, which is this very kind of corporate fan, even if they're they're self-proclaimed liberals politically or, you know, whatever they are politically, they they support management against the players. Uh, they, they, they support union busting, that sort of thing. They support uh, they, they support giving tax breaks to these owners in the United States. They uh, they, they, they they support. Uh, um, there are people who I know who are Tampa Bay Buccaneers fans who became uh, uh, Manchester United fans because of Glazer owning both teams. I mean, that, that's kind of an American mentality. Even these Americans who are Man City fans who then became New York City FC fans. I mean, I think that's that, I think that's kind of pathetic, personally. I, I, you know, but that's me. And I'm a Manchester City supporter. I've probably been a supporter longer than a lot of these uh, uh, Americans. But so the issue of fan ownership came up. Um, Robbie Earl made a comment, and our former uh, host of this podcast, of a previous incarnation of this podcast, Nipun Chopra, quickly pointed it out on on Twitter, which was uh, Robbie Earl said, it, uh, you, you, you don't want fan ownership because this is what fan ownership looks like, uh, implying fan ownership is some sort of mob rule. 
mm-hmm. right? Yep. That was his implication. Now, no one on that show, on that studio, and I expect better of Rami Musto because he's really a, 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 a very cosmopolitan, smart, smart guy. Maybe he, he felt he couldn't say it in this in this setting. Um, to point out that uh, you have. Uh, technically, Real Madrid and Barcelona are fan-owned, but I would all, I would argue, um, as I have on Twitter, that their boards are actually millionaire boards that control the club. So they're not good examples. But Bayern Munich is a good example. Well, they're commercially the most successful right. club in Europe. Well, they're, well, they're the best well, club in the in the in the world right now, probably. But, but they're owned but, by their members. But that's the thing, though, Kantik. Is Rebecca Lowe on Monday? said something to, along the lines of that, uh, well, we could have fan ownership and have the fans uh, be in charge of the club, like a 50 plus one, or have a, the fan ownership be a, a large percentage of the club. But then Manchester United probably would go down the divisions, go down to the third, <laughs> third, 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 third division. And she was serious about it. What is she talking about? Bayern Munich has more commercial revenue than Manchester United. And that's Manchester United under the Glazer ownership, right? Maybe if Manchester United had uh, ownership that was more invested in the club, they would they would probably because they are a bigger brand probably than Bayern interna- uh, globally. But Bayern member owned, their executives are all former players who live in Munich, who are part of the community, uh, part of the 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 the, the, man, the Bayern Munich community, not just the the the, the community in Bavaria. Um, have higher commercial revenues, have won the European Cup uh, how many times since Manchester United last won it, have been in semifinals and finals regularly since since Manchester United last won uh, the Champions League. So I, I, I don't know what she's talking about. Is she not aware that in, in Germany, which, by the way, is a bigger economy than the UK, uh, Germany, uh, of their 36 clubs in their top two divisions, 32 are owned by their fans. Yeah, that includes Borussia Dortmund also, right? Who's another big club everyone in England recognizes. I mean, it was an absolutely ignorant comment. It was an and um, also uh, they, they we have seen there there was no mention of FC United of Manchester except I think maybe in passing on on Sunday. That club was formed by Manchester United uh, supporters who uh, opposed the Glazers. Yes, I mentioned just a, a few uh, minutes ago they're in the seventh tier of English football. Maybe the Glory Hunters. Uh, don't like that. They don't want to support a seventh division team. But they have thousands and thousands of members. They have sustained that club now for over a decade. They have gotten promoted several times, and they have appealed to people across the globe. So uh, even that supporters group, that's a subset of Manchester United supporters have proven it can be done. Yet she was so openly dismissive. Elitist is the only term I can use to describe it. And it's a shame. I mean, I think we all like Rebecca Lowe as yep. a presenter. This was a, another side of her Saturday and uh, Sunday and Monday that I had never seen before. I think and quite frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm horrified by. I, I think overall, though, too, if we look at the last two weeks, it does show how NBC's coverage of the Premier League and, and soccer in general uh, it is not that good. I mean, it's not as good as it should be. For example, the last two weeks. So two weeks ago, it was the European Super League, the story breaking on a Sunday. And the the the, the winner, the hero in all of that was Gary Neville on Sky Sports, where he came out vehemently opposing what was happening and saying this was threatening the lifeblood of English football. That same day, you had uh, Robbie Musto, and I think uh, and Danny Higginbotham on, on the Sunday. And Danny's really good. I, I have a lot more respect for him. But there was really 
really, really weak analysis on, on that on that Sunday. The Monday coverage, the day after that, was much better by NBC. And then they had their thoughts together and they were able to really kind of, uh, Robbie Musto especially, was able to explain why he was upset by it. But on the Sunday, on the day that that news broke, it was a very weak, very me- mediocre, uh, tepid response from NBC. Then this past Sunday... It's the it's the Old Trafford invasion, the invasion of Old Trafford, and again the analysis from Re- Rebecca Lowe and, and in this case the two Robbies very very weak. And he, again for the second week in a row, it was Gary Neville was the one that came out on Sky Sports saying that um, yes, you mean yes, peaceful protest and all that, but I, he's saying I, I support the, the the fans, I support them in order to try to get the point across. And the Glazers have to listen to what's happening because the fans are just sick of it. We want the Glazers out. And, and I think th- these two examples are just just show how disappointed we are with NBC's coverage. Now, Monday's coverage this week with Danny Higginbotham and, um, and uh, Rebecca Lowe was much better in terms of Danny Higginbotham at least having a different opinion and him saying like, hey, I'm a Manchester United fan, and uh, I understand, I feel, I know what these fans feel, and trying to express that. But what happened, Kartik, when, when he was saying that? Uh, Rebecca Lowe seemed to be challenging him, not like a presenter would challenge a guest or a pundit, you know, or some uh, or a studio pundit, but as the opposing side. Well, basically, basically trying to... For the other side, which it... is not what Liam... I, I want to just contrast it within NBC with how Liam McHugh handled... Uh, he was in most of those days. I think Ahmed Farid was in one of the days, right, of the Super League. But Liam McHugh, uh, obviously very well-researched, not a soccer guy first and foremost, but knows enough uh, about, about the sport, was able to kind of uh, facilitate a more balanced discussion on the Super League. I, they weren't as aggressive as I would have liked them to be. You just mentioned that. But I think that that was a much fairer discussion that he facilitated on the Tuesday and the Wednesday, the Monday and the Tuesday and the Wednesday. Uh, and Ahmed Farid was in one of those days, as I said, then what Rebecca Lowe did on Monday, she was acting to me, Chris, as like the prosecutor coming back at Danny Higginbotham about his views. At least that's the way it came across to me. And in the middle of that, she had that comment about fan ownership. And by the way, um, Chris and I do speak to each other regularly, but um, Chris w- w- was not surprised when my, his phone rang a minute after Rebecca Lowe made that comment. Yeah, I can, I can believe she said that. During the week, and I was like, Chris, I, I, did I just hear what I thought I heard? And you, you said yes, you had heard it too. Yeah, I, I, think, I think in this particular instance, in terms of fan ownership, she she appears to be clueless. I mean, I mean, I mean, that's all I can think of in terms of just the way she's uh, expressing herself and uh, not with many opinions or, or, or understanding of, of the situation. And it's not it's not a good look for NBC. The challenge that NBC finds itself is in a very awkward position, though, Kartik. They're caught in between trying to keep the Premier League uh, content in a year where they're trying to renew their rights with the league for three more years. At the same time, NBC is trying to be seen as on the side of the fans, um, even in between that United-Liverpool postponement and the game between Spurs and Sheffield United. They broadcast, where they had like, like, what, like an hour, they, they, they televised the, uh, the Barclays 
fan infomercial, essentially what it is, <laughs> which is talking about how great the fans are and, and the, the Premier League Fan Fest. Isn't this wonderful? And, and very, very much a, um, not really, to me, not a really heartfelt, real look at real supporters. It was very, very, it was fluff. I mean, that, that, that's all it was. So, so at the same time, I mean, M- NBC is trying to make themselves look like they're on the side of the fans. Um, well, at the same time, I think many of the fans, many of the listeners, not all of them, I'm, I'm sure you, the listener, there's many of you who disagree with what we're saying. But most of the fans, uh, I think it's split. You, you have Man United fans who are split. You've got uh, the fans that are for, for the protests. Some of them, they're against it, saying, like, this is ridiculous. They shouldn't be doing this. This is embarrassing the club. So, so NBC is trying to satisfy the fans. And then lastly, I think NBC doesn't want to, want, does not want to upset the clubs. They want to maintain that good access to Manchester United if they come on tours in the future to the United States or to get those interviews. What they want to do, they don't want to come in too heavy on Man United either. So I think NBC finds itself in a tricky situation where there's three points of a triangle that they're trying to keep happy. And it's the Premier League, who uh, they want to renew the rights with. Uh, the clubs themselves, who want uh, they don't want to you know, say anything bad about the clubs, or n- n- nothing too severe. And then the fans, the viewers, the viewers, which we would think would be one of the most important parts of that triangle, but seem to be lost in this whole equation, really, because they, they just seem to be so out of touch. Now, c- compare that, Kartik, to CBS's coverage on Tuesday for the Champions League, and they did, well, about a 10-minute segment uh, pre-match, and interviewed uh, Peter Schmeichel, who's one of their analysts, and then had a discussion with uh, Michael Richards and Jamie Carragher. And I think Jamie Carragher was able to sum up um, really what was happening in terms of what the Manchester United fans were feeling and what his opinion was in about two minutes, uh, probably better than NBCSN had done. Well, they didn't really explain the Manchester United supporters' uh, viewpoint, as far as I could tell. And the other thing, Kartik, just to add on to that too, before you chime in, is is that uh, where's Gary and Evelyn in all of this in terms of the, the the coverage on NBC? It's like even when the Super League happened, it appeared that uh, Gary Neville didn't get a lot of airtime, uh, and now with the Old Trafford uh, fiasco that happened on Sunday, I mean maybe they should maybe they aired some of his comments but it seems to be that they're trying to not give him much profile because his opinions are very strong and very heavy-handed and very direct very aggressive but it's it's something that I think the the viewers in the United States should be hearing more often yeah, so a couple points there. First off, I think uh, NBC, when they think of the fan, they think of the maybe the American sports fan that's uh, into uh, NFL and uh, NHL, whatever else. Although uh, those are the two properties they also have. They're losing the NHL, but uh, that 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 are very kind of franchise driven, uh, American franchise driven. They would be against fan ownership. They're for the billionaire owners. They uh, they 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 uh, are the people who, as I said earlier, throw tax money at uh, at these owners. So I think maybe they think that they have a complete misunderstanding of who a lot of the Premier League fans are in the U.S. Now, some of them are that way. Don't get me wrong. And I find it especially among my own fan base, Manchester City fans, because uh, we've attracted a certain brand of glory hunter in the last uh, uh, 10 years in this country. But Manchester United fans in the U.S. tend to be longer term 
what we would term legacy fans. And I think they completely misread who they were communicating with based on that. They're fans that predate NBC covering the Premier League. Um, on to Carragher. Before we get to Carragher and Peter Schmeichel and that little clash, the two minutes you mentioned, in two minutes he summarized this better than NBC did. His take is, sure, there were some excesses. We all admit that. I've said the people who've come back at me said, oh, what about the looting and the guy who threw the camera? Okay, prosecute those people. That, that's, that's fine. But do not let it obscure the bigger message. So Carragher was very clear about that. Okay? Oh, yeah, there were some excesses, but I support the Manchester United supporters. They had to do this, type of, basically, is what Carragher said. Um, the Peter Schmeichel segment was... Um, was disappointing. I, I mean, I don't know whether to cut him some slack because after Carragher cut him off, Carragher was very, you could tell, was well, very angry. Yeah, Carragher and, cut him off, but I mean, Schmeichel had a good a cut two to three minutes and, and was very, very politically correct. I mean, yeah, he, he, yeah. he's a global, I mean, what, what CBS didn't mention is he's a global ambassador for Manchester United. I mean, everybody yes. knows he's a former Manchester United great. But then after about two to three minutes of Schmeichel kind of just dancing around, Carragher jumped in. And, 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 and I think actually it was okay for Carragher. It was because try, he's trying to get Peter, Peter to react. Yeah, basically. And uh, Carragher um, clearly is on the fan side. So he jumps in. And then when they go back to Schmeichel after Carragher has said his bit, Schmeichel's like Schmeichel backed off a little bit and and basically said something very, very uh, generic, but said, yeah, I support the fans, but not really with much conviction. Um, Mika Richards made made the point, obviously, that this this uh, um, this is kind of a one off, which I, I believe it might be, too, in terms of getting a, a match uh, scrubbed. Uh, and, and so the American reaction, the American uh, reaction is, oh, well, they're hurting their team because what if they have to forfeit the match? This is the thing. Americans think totally in terms of money, uh, or many Americans, not all Americans, and clearly, you know, we don't, and a lot of our listeners don't, but a lot of Americans think just totally in terms of money, which, you know, Man United is worth whatever, $4 billion, uh, $4 billion uh, $3 billion pounds. And wins and losses on the pitch to the Manchester United supporters I correspond with, all of whom, you know, have enjoyed those European nights. They've enjoyed winning the Champions League twice in, in their in their lifetimes. Right. They've enjoyed 13 Premier League titles. This is bigger than any three points you might win or lose on the uh, 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 on the day. Any uh, and there are people saying, "Oh, it's going to hurt them in their prep for the Euro- Europa League. They might lose that, not win that trophy because of the, this." The United supporters I've talked to, again, if that means they don't win the Europa League and it goes to Villarreal or Roma or someone else or Arsenal, so be it. They need to make a point. This is bigger mm-hmm. than any result or any trophy. And NBC uh, was not able to convey that. CBS didn't really convey that either, but they did a better job of it. And I think Kate Abdo as a presenter, uh, granted, she is a Manchester United fan. So maybe she's more invested in this than Rebecca Lowe or more invested in it from a supporter standpoint, uh, did a much better job of facilitating the conversation. In fairness, she didn't have to facilitate the conversation for hours on end like Rebecca Lowe did. Um, but uh, also one other fair point I want to make about NBC is I thought they were they had cooler heads after that Premier League fan uh, that Barclays infomercial. I think that they were a little more nuanced and reasonable in their takes on uh, on um, Sunday. 
Sunday afternoon. And I think I was kind of I had written that piece that that, that, that that we published at World Soccer Talk, but I was ready just to let it go and say, hey, you know, they've learned. And then came Monday with 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 Rebecca Lowe uh, saying Dub- doubling down. Yeah, doubling down. Right. So I, I, I had thought maybe they had just reacted badly to it and. Uh, and NBC executives or whoever put their arms around Rebecca and the two Robbies and said, "Hey, you know, uh, look, I mean, that that's the gut reaction. What you did. Now let's calm down. Let's 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 give a broader perspective. Let's let's kind of give more nuance and balance balance this conversation. That did not happen. So I, I'm I'm as a as a football supporter. I know I'm in the media, but I'm a supporter first and foremost, Chris. I'm furious. And again, I support a rival club, the Manchester United. I'm not a Manchester United supporter, but I am really disappointed in how the Manchester United supporters have been characterized on the Premier League rights holder, the, 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 on the, on the right, uh, on the broadcast of the rights holders in this country. Yeah. I, I'm just, that's my, that's my takeaway. Yeah. And the feeling I got from um, the two Robbies and, and Rebecca Lowe was that they were on the side of the, the Glazers, that they were saying this is you mean, absolutely yep. horrible. That's what I got from it. You mean, that, that, that was the I feeling think. I got. It, it didn't feel that uh, I had any sense of um, empathy or, or feelings of uh, emotion or support for the fans who are protesting, who basically at this point have almost said, okay, what, what else can we do to try to get our message across to get the Glazers out? And, and, and this was, this is what they came up with. And um, who knows whether or not it'll be effective, but just the way that they portrayed it in terms of um, expressing that they're, basically they're kind of... Um, Disgust at all of this, but Gary Neville summed it up best on Sunday on Sky Sports News, and he said, um, "All football fans should unite today behind what Manchester United fans have done, because what United, City, Liverpool, Chelsea, Arsenal, and Spurs owners did two weeks ago is really dangerous to English football. We must not forget that." And and that carries through very similar to what he had said the week before when he was talking about the European Super League. And for Alawai to say that, uh, that, that the protests on Sunday had nothing to do with the European Super League, he's absolutely wrong. And and I guess the, the jeopardy with all of this, Kartik, or the challenge with all of this is when Alawai speaks or Rebecca Lowe speaks, both of them have a lot of uh, reach. And there's a lot of people that don't understand the history of what's happened from 2005 onwards in terms of the Glazers. And NBC really didn't didn't do a good job of really uh, uh, explaining that. So when Arlo and, and Rebecca say these things, a lot of American soccer fans who are new to the Premier League, they believe it. They think, okay, yeah, I, I agree with them. So, so a lot of my my takes on Twitter uh, get get rejected. And I mean, I, I know I have kind of a, a, a person, persona on Twitter where I'm controversial. I am really touched by how many people agree with me about specifically what you just said, because I I made that point on Twitter very uh, aggressively that NBC has an obligation to educate the American Premier League fan about what the Glazers have done to that club and to also educate the American Premier League fan on what the stat, the financial state of Manchester United was before 2005. They didn't do either of those two things. So maybe we can't totally fault the American fan for reflexively defending an American ownership group, particularly people here in Florida. The Glazers are well known here. Uh, they're Floridians and they're well known in the state. And, and then, you know, just saying, ah, oh, this is typical British xenophobia against Americans and they're always against Americans because NBC didn't actually educate the Americans who have not, who don't know as much about this situation about 
what has happened to get us to this point. And they have not, and as I mentioned earlier, they have not mentioned, although I guess Rebecca Lowe did do it in passing, in fairness, but it was in passing, right? It was never as part of a larger narrative or a larger talking point that they have tried for 16 years to raise attention doing things peacefully and by the book. And in fact, at times, uh, Chris, they've been derided. People have laughed in the media at Manchester United supporters. Oh, look at how, uh, how ineffective they are, right? This green and gold movement. They didn't prove anything by a big deal. They got David Beckham and Eric Cantona to race, uh, race scarves. It didn't affect the Glazers. You know, they were a joke, these supporters. They don't, you would hear, uh, patronizing things like that. And that was, that was not NBC. That was the, the British press. Oh, you know, they, 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 they can't get their act together. So when they finally do get their act together, look at the reaction. So maybe supporters can't win, right? You know, there's there's an elite class of uh, of people who who have a financial stake in this game that are always going to put us down. I, I don't know. I hope that's not the case, but yeah, you, you have to wonder after this week. The, the the jeopardy with this though too is that NBC Sports is looking like they're basically a um, part of the Premier League. That that it's all about the Premier League. It's a very positive Premier League focus in terms of what they talk about. It's it's focusing on all the great things, all the highlights, all the wonderful things, and not really getting into the gritty parts of it, where there is a lot of resentment and anger, and and especially over, over the European Super League, but but lots of other things. But even to the extent of too, we have to remember it was like what a few months ago. NBC, actually, last season, the end of last season, NBC put a chart on the screen saying, okay, here's how many uh, Premier League titles Liverpool has won and, and Manchester United. <laughs> yeah, forgetting right. the, the whole entire history of, of the clubs that had won, you mean, all the titles they had won before the Premier League had started. So it is a very PR-focused uh, for the Premier League. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the Premier League love it. I'm sure the Glazers love it in terms of the way that NBC is framing this conversation where the fans are the bad guys and the owners are, you mean, these um, kind of invisible Americans. And they're charitable. They're giving football to the masses. That's kind of like the undertone of it. Be thankful. There are people saying, and I know NBC didn't say this directly, but there are people who are watching NBC's coverage who took this, oh, you should be thankful for the Glazers. They're they're paying the bills and they're giving you Manchester United. Yeah. You should be thankful for Stan Kroenke. It's like, what? Well, and and, and Tim Howard's. Well, Tim Howard two weeks ago saying that uh, he had he had good relations with the Cronkies and the, the Cronkies gave uh, or the Cron- Stan Cronky uh, did a lot for uh, Colorado Colorado Rapids. Nothing negative to say at all. So I guess it's, it's it's a difficult situation, but we would much appreciate if NBC was more honest. But but even the Peter Schmeichel thing on CBS, I was really disappointed with that just yeah. because. I don't know. Interview. I mean, so it's Tuesday. We're recording this Tuesday night. Um, Manchester United's game in the Europa League is on Thursday. I'm hoping between now and then, uh, maybe on Thursday, that they'll get a chance to interview some of the Manchester United supporters groups and, and to ask them from the fan perspective. And and that's the part that we're missing in all of this, Kartik. You and I are fans. Um, but in terms of NBC's coverage of this, Sky Sports' coverage of it too, as well as CBS too, we're not getting that fan perspective. All we're getting is is talking heads, and many of them, I believe, are completely out of touch with with reality. And and what NBC did on Sunday with the two Robbies and Rebecca Lowe, it seemed to be very Americanized. I mean, it, it seemed to be that these people, I mean, the two Robbies and Rebecca Lowe, who I have a lot of respect for, seem to be out of touch with what's going on on the streets. 
Yeah, completely out of touch. They have, and they they've had opportunities since to talk to Manchester United supporters. Have not. CBS had two days for this segment on Thursday, uh, Tuesday. They didn't. Obviously, their commentary was, I think, significantly better than NBC's. Uh, Peter Schmeichel aside, but still, they didn't do the very basic job to get that perspective. ESPN FC. So. Um, Here's the thing. I mean, I know there are people who listen to this podcast or read our site who think that I have some sort of uh, uh, there's some reason I like ESPN better than I like the other networks that broadcast the sport. It's just that I, I maybe we all have personal preferences. ESPN FC has not done that either, in fairness. But there has been much more um, balance in their co- in their coverage in their conversations and again this we've talked about this before nbc doesn't have a reporter anymore on uh on uh that 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 that, that contributes since neil ashton actually left to run pr at manchester united ironically enough um they don't have that guy uh esp there's a few of those guys gab marcotti is a pundit but he is also a reporter with uh, some of the best sources in, in in english and european football so between marcotti and mark ogden and julian lorenz they had the fan perspective covered because those guys talked to enough fans. Um, mm-hmm. And those guys were much less – now, granted, all three of them were based in the UK um, – were much less uh, uh, favorable towards the Glazers than, than what you saw on NBC. Um, Dan Thomas is based in Bristol. Uh uh, but, Bristol, Connecticut. But he, so, <laughs> Bristol, Connecticut, right now. Right, not Bristol, England. England. Right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Bristol, Connecticut. He's he's hosting, but he's steering the conversation in a very different direction than Rebecca Lowe did. Now, maybe it's because he's got these three British-based uh, based pundits um, and also has, quite honestly, you know, Shaka Hislop, who's very smart and has mentioned in the past, you know, the business uh, of the Glazers and what the Glazers have done and, and has talked about that in the past. But ESPN covered this story completely differently than NBC. So does that come down to NBC being a rights holder? Does that come down to NBC being out of touch? Or does that come down to NBC thinking the Premier League fan, fan in the United States is fundamentally different than the Premier League fan in the UK? I'm not sure. I don't know what the answer is. Maybe it's a combination of all three. But clearly, ESPN covering it as a news story because they don't have Premier League rights uh, covered it very differently. Yeah, two things there. I mean, one is is that I didn't get much of a feel for here's a list of, of the things that the Glazers have done at Manchester United to upset the fans. I, I, I didn't get that education from NBC, SN uh, over the weekend, especially on the Sunday, that they, they didn't seem to kind of uh, inform the viewer some of the, the, the things that they've done in terms of talking about uh, taking the club in um, debt leverage, leveraging debt. And now the club is what, in, in I think 550 million euros in debt uh, over uh, almost half a, half a billion dollars in debt. Um, and then the second thing is is that um, well, well, I should say mention real quickly on that. Mark Ogden, uh, who is a, a, a Manchester based reporter, is, is I think a United supporter, but but uh, is with ESPN. He says it's closer to a billion when you talk about the servicing on the debt and the money they've taken out in dividend okay. payments. So, and, and, uh, and then now, they, now, now, granted, he and Marcotti have, have cited that number and have been challenged by a number of 
mostly American-based people challenging them on that. But that's that that's their reporting, and so I, I kind of trust that number. Yeah. So, so the first thing is is kind of the the lack of information uh, given by NBC uh, to show the other side to to really kind of paint a. A, a true picture of what's happening in terms of what the Glazers have done and, and why the fans are upset. And then the second thing of all, all too, Kartik, you have to think about is that um, NBC has the rights to the NFL and uh, the Glazers as one of the, uh, as the owner of the NFL Tampa Bay Buccaneers, it's in NBC's best interest to go ahead and not rock the boat too much, not, not upset the, uh, the NFL or one of the NFL owners um, so it seemed to be like a very, very safe, very uh, politically correct, very kind of a um, very measured uh, analysis of what happened on Sunday. And, and, and Sky Sports isn't perfect either. I think in many ways, too, Kartik, uh, they're also trying to renew the rights to the Premier League. At the same time, they're owned by the same company that NBC Sports is owned by, uh, the parent company, uh, Comcast. Uh, and Sky Sports on Monday, Monday Night Football, usually have uh, Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville. Well, it was Jamie Carragher and Thierry Henry. So I don't know if there was anything to that in terms of Gary Neville being so outspoken for two weeks in a row that uh, they thought, okay, let's let's cool the Jets a little bit and not have uh, Gary Neville coming on saying some really strong things against the way that the Premier League is handling this or, or against uh, the Glazers. When um, when we've got an opportunity to try to renew the rights in the UK, so there's a lot of different things going on. I I don't think there's anyone out there that's perfectly analysing this, but I was disappointed with NBC SN big time. I was disappointed with CBS in terms of having Peter Schmeichel. I, I guess it's important to get his. I don't know. I, I just thought that uh, it was very predictable. There was nothing that Peter Schmeichel said. Um, really, that other than to you mean re- read from the what we would expect him to say, which is basically nothing. I mean, it was t- too safe of, of an answer. There was nothing really there as far as I mean. I'd rather them interview a supporters group. And one more thing, Kartik, before we move on to uh, next segment, CBS too. Uh, unfortunately, this is a really embarrassing mistake on Tuesday. Jim Beglin. Uh, the commentator for the uh, PSG Man City game. Great game, by the way. I really enjoyed watching this one. But uh, when uh, Angel de, de Maria uh, got sent off, uh, Jim Beglin uh, same, saying something to the effect of uh, the Latino uh, temperament getting better of uh, Angel de, de Maria. And uh, a few minutes later, uh, Jim Beglin um, said he, he was sorry and he apologized for saying that. But uh, not a good day all around for CBS's coverage on Tuesday. Hopefully it'll get better on Wednesday and Thursday, but it's important to note that. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the Beglin thing, I think, unfortunately, uh, Chris, and this is this is the reality, is that um, I think sensitivity is not as far along. Okay, I've done a lot of bashing of American commentators and fans the last couple of weeks, I know. Uh, uh, I, I will say this. Sensitivity is not as far along in the UK as it is in the US. And sensitivity training in terms of uh, terminology and how, you know, that, that's something that you, you cannot say on the air in the United States. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's just I know that might sound harsh, but you cannot say that. And it's and it's, and it's not true. I think there are plenty of hot tempered English players and, and American players and German players, whatever. Yeah. Um, so 
I think this is something CBS will have to address internally if they're going to continue to use UK-based crews, which I think they should continue to do because they've been successful at this point. To this point, now, granted, they they had to they had to hit hit the ground running, right? They got the rights from Turner, and they had to go. They had to go, go, go. They probably never properly addressed to their commentators how. Um, social norms are different in the United States and how these need to be addressed differently. I don't think there was any malice in Beglin's comments, but again, if he were working directly in the United States for an American broadcaster, he'd probably, you know, at best be suspended and maybe be fired. So I, I think, yep. uh, well, it's something CBS has to is going to just have to address internally, and they well, probably had not done it to this point. And there was always it was always bound to happen. Yeah, in, and in these circumstances. I mean, with the Champions League, there's two, there's two games to go, right? The the second semi final, which will be probably Clive Tilsley and Rob Green or, or Matthew Upson, and then the final, which I'd imagine would be probably Clive Tilsley and maybe Rob, um, I don't know. Well, probably not Jim Beglin. Let's let, let's say that say it that way. But uh, yeah, it's uh, a lot to take in in terms of uh, what's been happening this past week from the world of soccer, especially with the Champions League. Uh, and then, of course, the, the Super League and the Manchester United uh, affair. And, uh, and then, Kartik, um, anything else from what we've watched this past week you want to mention of, of interest? Yeah, I actually thought NBC did a – this is the funny thing. I mean, I came in uh, to, to Sunday thinking NBC had really improved their Premier League coverage based on what we had seen in the pregame of, of Fulham, uh, Fulham-Chelsea, that they had actually shown highlights from, uh, from, uh, the, uh, from, the, from the midweek Champions League. Oh, right. And had credited CBS with that, uh, and, and, and they had, were talking about the FA Cup which is something I've complained about, that they act like the Premier League is this competition that acts, uh, exists in a vacuum. So Rebecca Lowe and, Rob, and Robbie, uh, Robbie Earl and Robbie Musto are talking about this, and I'm thinking, okay, NBC is getting it, and this is good. This is going to catapult them into another three years if they, if they retain the rights. And then Sunday happens. So yeah. I actually was prepared uh, Sunday morning to be talking about how, how uh, NBC had improved um, their Premier League coverage, and then, then came the massive letdown of Sunday and Monday. Yeah, so let's move on to TV streaming news and uh, some big announcements this week uh, that are going to be of particular interest to many of our listeners, I believe. Yeah, so the first uh, piece of news is Fubu TV has announced the new streaming ser- uh, that their streaming service has signed Pablo Zabaleta and Melissa Ortiz as hosts of their Ball World Cup qualifiers coverage. Zabaleta, a legend at my club, Manchester City, uh, great Argentine international as well, although uh, I would argue they didn't use him as much as they should have uh, <laughs> in the fullback position. Uh, and then Melissa Ortiz, someone you and I both know very well uh, from here in South Florida and have worked with in the past. Yep, yeah, Melissa Ortiz, if you haven't watched her before she uh used to play for colombia and played in the olympics uh, for colombia and has been a professional footballer but uh, very outgoing um a great um soccer person in terms of knowledge and um i mean definitely i think she'll be a good fit for fubo tv with her coverage so so both uh, both pablo and melissa will be doing uh, i think pre-game halftime post-match uh, of the conmebol world cup qualifiers which will start back up again pretty soon so and some big matches on the way there. Uh, next up in news is Univision has announced their Euro 2020 TV schedule and streaming schedule uh, for the tournaments that kicks off in June. What's interesting here is that um, 
not a lot of games on television. Most of the games are going to be on their new streaming service called, uh, yes, another new streaming service called uh, Prende TV, and uh, which is a free streaming service, which is uh, ad-supported. Uh, we've got the story at worldsoccertalk.com that goes into more detail about what uh, Prende TV is. But um, the big matches, some of the big ones, like the France against Germany, I think Portugal's game, and then the opening game, uh, those will be on Univision and uh, Tudo Ene. But uh, part of the reason, too, that um, there's not a lot of games, actually no games on Unamas or Galavision and uh, very few on Univision and Tuduene is it's it, it's ha- happening at the same time as Copa America. Um, plus, on top of that, too, I mean, uh, Univision has their regular programming, uh, telenovelas, news, entertainment, etc. Uh, so, and this is a great opportunity for Univision to roll out uh, Prende TV and get sports fans to watch these games for free. So, 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 couple, couple things here. I wanted to mention about Univision. Um, I understand for a lot of us who are Eurocentric, uh, or a lot of people who are just exclusively Eurocentric, it may seem very odd. But I was uh, here in South Florida during the Euro 2008. You were actually in in, in Switzerland, Chris, yeah. when this happened, when South American World Cup qualifiers were kicking off during the Euros. And I will say in South Florida, there was no interest in the Euros. And people were shocked. I was I wanted to watch Turkey versus Austria or whoever was playing, right? Turkey, Croatia, I think was, was actually mm-hmm. one of the games. Uh, instead of watching um, uh, uh, South American qualifiers. Similarly, I saw the same thing in 2016 uh, among uh, uh, South Floridians, Latinos, uh, the Floridians in general, some of the Orlando area. Copa America and the Euros were going on at the same time. Once the Euros kicked off, I was focused on the Euros more than Copa, even though I had been Copa that year was in the U.S. and I, I was covering it. Um, and that was not the case with a lot of other people. So I think Univision is probably making a smart decision here. It's going to be very difficult going forward because Copa America and the Euros are always going to be in the same. Although Condoval changes things all the time, right? So maybe yeah. the, for the next ten years they'll be at the same time. You know, next next two cycles, next uh, eight years, and then after that they'll switch Copa again. But um, I kind of understand it. I don't think it's great. Uh, this is a big boost for for ESPN, I guess, and ABC because uh, there's no viable, really viable, looking at that program schedule except for a few matches. Uh, Spanish language option um, to to take viewers from them. So this might be actually go a lot better for ESPN than we had anticipated. Yeah, um, and, and that, that's a really good break for them. Yeah, and also for Univision, it's probably a, a better fit for them as far as Copa America. Uh, having that audience watching Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, etc., and, and and maybe just trying to focus most of their attention on on that tournament, while ESPN and ABC is going to run run away with it with the Euro 2020 coverage, which we'll get more details of that soon. But speaking of Univision running away with it uh, in terms of the Spanish language rights, uh, next up, Carter, you've got some news about the English language rights to Copa America. Yeah, this uh, came a little bit out of nowhere today. Uh, we're recording on Tuesday, Chris, but it's also it makes a lot of sense if you consider Fox has the next two World Cups. They uh, have acquired Copa America uh, in English uh, through uh, English language rights to Copa America through 2026. So at least the next two tournaments uh, will be. Uh, on uh, on Fox Sports and uh, other South American uh, uh, football as well, they've acquired so in English. So we're going to have an English language home for Copa America, which we haven't always had. 
in the past. Uh, they obviously ha- showed the 2016 tournament on Fox. They 20, 2007 and 2011 tournaments. Uh, uh, you and I have talked about sticker albums lately. I, I was going back through my 2007 uh, Copa America Panini album, which I completed. Uh, the 2011 album I did not complete. Uh, but those those tournaments I had to watch in Spanish, I remember. Uh, 2016, I did not have to. 2019, uh, obviously, Fox didn't have either in English. So this mm-hmm. is... Uh, this is a long-term play, too. It's not just – we've seen a lot of times Copa America rights. They've been one-tournament deals, uh, one-year one deals. Uh, now we're seeing a long-term deal with Fox in English, which also, it, to me, th- I think Comedy Ball is seeing more value in Copa America and Copa Libertadores on the English language side, which they had not seen previously, uh, which to me is very significant and is a significant – I don't want to say it's a game-changer, but it may may affect the viewing preferences of a lot of you listening in the future. If there's more South American football on in English language on a mainstream channel in good time slots. Yeah, this is a story we've been following very closely for over 12 months now, because uh, over 12 months ago, it looked like Telemundo was going to, going to get the, the Spanish language rights to the Copa America 2020. And then uh, the pandemic happens. And uh, uh, basically, there was a kind of a pause in, in the bidding. Uh, one of the reasons that there was a pause, too, is because that uh, Telemundo was interested in getting the rights to the uh, 2020 Copa America. Um, but Conmebol wanted to, according to my sources, Conmebol wanted to sell uh, the rights to not only the 2020 Copa America, which was rescheduled to 2021, but also the 2024 uh, Copa America, too. So they wanted to bundle it together and also bundle it with the uh, Copa America uh, the Women's Copa America, as well as some additional rights. So that was part of the issue I think that Telemundo was concerned with in terms of uh, probably the amount of money that uh, was being asked to go ahead and, and go bundle everything together and, and get it. And uh, meanwhile, Univision scooped in and got the rights on the Spanish language side. And a lot of the questions coming to us over the last few months is, what about the English language rights? And, and we we're like, okay, there's not much news yet. But once it is announced, we'll let everybody know, which we are doing right now. But at the time, we were saying there's probably not a lot of um, demand for it because ESPN is busy with uh, the Euros. Uh, You've got um, NBC with the Olympics. And then uh, CBS so far hasn't been really kind of big into uh, trying to get rights to massive tournaments. They're more focused on on leagues, whether it's Serie A or the Argentine League or things that go around to kind of like the whole 12 months or pretty close to it. So Fox was one of the ones that uh, wasn't really being discussed or mentioned. And so from my understanding, the actual valuation of these rights should be pretty small. There's not a lot of people that are going to be, there are fans of Brazil or Argentina or Colombia they're going to be watching these games in English. They're probably going to be watching, most definitely going to be watching these games uh, in uh, in Spanish on Univision. And then you'll get um, fans like you and I, Kartik, or maybe some uh, mainstream fans that might tune in to watch, uh, to see Messi play and Neymar, etc., and watch them in English on, on Fox or FS1 or FS2. So, But still, it's good news for Fox uh, just because... They've been out of the acquisition game for so long in terms of trying to acquire rights for soccer that they finally have something. And it's a good lead in to uh, talking about the Women's World Cup and talking about the World Cup. It's a good uh, way to promote their coverage of uh, the World Cup tournaments 
uh, using Copa America as, as the vehicle for that. All right, Kartik, uh, listener mailbag. Uh, Adam Hay says, I really, really enjoy your pod and look forward to it dropping each week into my feed. In listening to your latest pods and comments on promotion relegation in the United States, I began to think about how complex it would be to implement here, given the current structure, even if people would honestly opt to go that route. With USL League 2 largely serving as a summer league for D1 college students to further hone their games, it would seem that you would already be only uh, able to go down maybe three leagues deep. MLS, USL Championship, and maybe USL League 1. If USL were changed, then you'd lose uh, out on some great talent who get the chance to prove themselves and make a career here in the US. One example who I know personally is Paul Marie, of San Jose, who came over to play from France at a university, uh, Newbury College and then UCF, uh, who played for Reading United, who I support for three consecutive summers before getting drafted. Now, Kartik, uh, if anyone knows the um, lower leagues or kind of lower divisions or uh, grassroots soccer uh, in the United States, as well as anyone, it, it, it's you. What's your thoughts? I mean, is is that uh, even if there was promotion relegation, which it's extremely unlikely given MLS um, and, and what they believe, you mean would it be three leagues deep? Could it could it be deeper? Uh, yeah, USL League Two, uh, which uh, I believe Adam's referring to, that's where Reading United plays. Uh, they serve a, a real purpose in terms of giving. Um, a, so structurally, we have we have four different national leagues that are kind of at what we would consider the fourth division level: USL League Two, the uh, NPSL, and uh, the UPSL. The uh, USL League Two depends almost entirely on college players and academy players at professional clubs. So uh, they produce some really good professional players. I would not want to hurt that league. NPSL is kind of a mixture. There are uh, some high-level, you know, former professionals or even players in between that are playing in NPSL, older players in addition to college players. Uh, and there are certain rules you have to follow. I don't want to get too deep into it about that. UPSL is almost entirely an adult league, national adult league at the fourth division level that, that produce very few players that go on to um, to to. To, to really high professional levels. So the way I would do it is if you had ProRel, you would cut USL down to the fourth division. You would count USL League 2 out of it. You would keep that league as is because I think Adam makes a very good point. That league um, serves a specific purpose for developing players who then oftentimes, uh, who are college players who then oftentimes land in Europe or land in MLS and end up being national team players. There was a long list of players who played internationally, including in the most recent Gold Cup, we'll see it again this summer, Gold Cup, for Caribbean nations, et cetera, and the U.S. that have played in that league. Uh, but that is not the only D4 league. There, there, there are two other D4 national leagues, and, and uh, actually you know, the league I, I manage in South Florida uh, is a league that has the clubs that are in every single one of our clubs, you know, because those leagues only play at certain times of the year, in the t- 
periods of time that those leagues aren't playing, I manage a league that has clubs that are exclusively in the, that are entirely in those leagues and other fourth division leagues. So then there are a lot of regional leagues like the league I manage, which um, uh, which would be part of that because our clubs would be part of that, right? And there would be something you did with our leagues. We would roll them into the other to the other national leagues. So it can be done. I think the big uh, the big issue is that USL. Uh, is a franchise-based league, and MLS is a single-entity-based league. And so USL sells franchises, and MLS does not. MLS owners buy buy shares into the league. USL owners buy franchises from the league, which is the way the NFL operates or the NBA operates. MLS isn't structured that way. It's structured as a single entity. So unwinding single entity and making it a franchise-based or club-based system uh, is much more difficult. Uh, it would be much easier at the USL level because, again, they are a franchise-based league. And while franchises don't translate uh, directly to European uh, to the way clubs are structured in Europe or South America, it is probably easier because you do at least own your cl- own your franchise. Uh, you do not own your club in MLS technically, so that would be legally a. It would be. It, I, I admit the difficulty in, in including MLS in any pro rel system, um, but I think it can be done at the USL league. NISA can be built in, and that's got to be. Uh, an aspirational goal, I believe, for everybody in the next uh, five to ten years is to link all the divisions outside of MLS together. Uh, unfortunately, I think uh, politics and egos are getting in the way of that that happening. Next up is Tim Keen. Tim says, Kartik has mentioned many times over the last few weeks about football being a working class sport. I'm not sure what he really means, as there are very few people who don't work for a living. A quick review of the cost of attending a Premier League game as a family reveals that it is not a sport for the poor. Are his roots in, in the Democrat Party getting in the way? The people who attend and support clubs, in my opinion, are much more middle class, so I would suggest it's time to move on from his so-called working class teams. And Kartik, before you jump in there too, I, I think I think a, a point that um, Tim and, and other listeners may want to note is that uh, the working class, so it might be the the lower middle middle class or, or blue collar, have, have really been priced out of going to games yeah. uh, in the Premier League, and they're I mean they're, they're actually been priced out of watching a lot of the games uh, on television because it's Sky Sports, which is a very expensive subscription in the UK compared to what we pay in the United States and you get far fewer games. So I think oftentimes kind of the the blue collar um, lower middle class in the UK have either, you mean change clubs gone to support smaller clubs or, or just read about it in the papers and, will watch games now and again if they're available on free-to-air or, 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 or go to a pub. don't like the Premier League. I mean, uh, so, so right. this is a great question, Tim. I appreciate it because um, it was a working cl- – it is still a working-class sport. Championship clubs, uh, football league clubs, uh, non-league clubs are still very popular, and the roots of those are working-class fans. Um the Premier League has become a playground for the rich and for wealthy fans. Uh, I wouldn't even say middle class. I'd say upper middle class. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the UK, keep in mind also, Tim, the UK is much more class conscious than the US is. Um, in fact, you mentioned the Democratic Party. I would say the Democratic Party now is the party of the rich. The, the working class party is the Republican Party. They're the more... I think left party on a lot of issues too for the working class more than the Democrats. Although historically, of course, as a Democrat, we were the the further left party in the days I came of age, but 
the UK is much more class conscious. And I think um, that the working class still sees football as a working class game. The, uh, the upper class in Britain were not football fans. Sometimes they saw football as a way to make money. And, and I don't want to pretend like American owners are the only ones that have commoditized the sport. In the, uh, it, there were plenty of bad British owners. These kind of snake business people who were from a town and would buy the local club and, and do, 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 do terrible things with the club. There are several examples of that. But it was by and large a working class sport. Now, as the sport became more global and became more glamorous, um, it became – an upper middle class playground, particularly in the big city clubs, the Manchester clubs, but less so the Manchester clubs, certainly not the two Liverpool clubs. They're still working class clubs, Liverpool and Everton. Um, and then the clubs in London. Uh, QPR is, is, is very notably in Shepherd's Bush, still a, ver- a very working class club. Uh, the, the more posh people in that area tend to support Fulham or, or Chelsea. Uh, but the truth be told, a lot of those people weren't football fans 20 or 30 years ago, Tim. I, I mean, I don't I think upper middle class, what we would classify as upper middle class fans in the UK, people in the UK were not football fans until pretty recently. There were exceptions, but generally it was a working class sport. Um, m- my point is also about Germany. Germany is a mem- the clubs are member owned because football is a very working class, um, uh, you know, day laborer type sport where people who, who punch their time clocks and work nine to five or whatever, although, you know, they have they have different uh, social structure in Germany than they do in the United States, uh, are football fans. And they're members of football clubs and they own their football clubs, which goes back to this whole discussion about club ownership. So the roots are working class. I think the majority of clubs in the UK, uh, because remember, the Premier League is 20 clubs out of hundreds of clubs in the country and 20 out of the, the 94 professional, 92 professional clubs. Um Outside the Premier League, there are the clubs are, are by and large working class clubs, and and every once in a while you have a, a, a QPR or a Sheffield United uh, or a Huddersfield, which are really still working class clubs. Uh, crash the party a little bit and get into the Premier League. Uh, but and one last point on this: this is why for traveling fans from the continent, going to England has been tough uh, in in UEFA in. Champions League and Europa League, because the ticket prices at, at matches in England are far higher than they are in in, in, in Spain, Italy, Germany, or France, mm-hmm. for the most part. So I, I think the Premier League is really an exception. You make a really good point, Tim, if you look at the Premier League. But if you look outside the Premier League, there's still real working class roots uh, uh, of this sport that are that are being honored still. Yeah. Another one of our listeners, uh, Ian Cranston's knees, uh, said, uh, I just renewed my season ticket at the now not-so-mighty Stoke City. Uh, still £344 for a full season, uh, wow. though, so I can't complain too much. So that's about maybe about $475 uh, for an entire season. Of- 23 home matches right. in the championship. That's Plus- a- yeah. Plus, maybe probably some some cup games thrown in, in there too, and some other benefits. So, so that that's, I mean, and that's a championship club. So that that is, I mean, in terms of uh, price wise, um, I mean, you're talking about Arsenal, and you're talking about, I mean, m- way way more than double that. 
uh, if not three times that. In terms yeah, of yeah. Arsenal, Arsenal and Chelsea effectively had to create a new supporter space when they raised ticket prices. That's another point. So there are a lot of Chelsea fans and Arsenal fans that, yeah, they're priced out of their grounds now, but they're the legacy fans of those clubs, and they may have been the same fans protesting the Super League. Uh, but there are a lot of those clubs in particular, and as I mentioned, Chelsea's an interesting one because I've seen the dynamic change in that part of town where uh, Fulham had a lot of, if you if there were people who were more posh that were interested in football, they tended to be football, Fulham fans. Uh, Brentford is in that neighborhood too, or close by. Um, I've seen over over the course of the last 20 years, really kind of QPR is the last club with really a working class uh, base of supporters, which is why it was cool those couple of years they did come up into the Premier League. Um, but they uh, their, their fan base still remains a working class base. The other three clubs, uh, now Brentford with their new stadium especially, appealing to a higher level uh, income-wise of fan. Dave Roberts says, uh, point one, a couple of weeks ago, you waxed poetically about how soccer team owners should behave and treat their communities. While I conceptually agree, globally speaking, American businessmen owning teams in England and Europe, who do you blame for the Super, who you blame for the Super League aren't the only owners who are speaking out of both sides of their mouths. Let's not forget the other businessmen a businessman who bought a club and said all the right things when he did. He spoke of how he was going to give this, uh, give back to his community and how he wanted to, the young boys to have heroes to look up to and, and to aspire to be like. I'm, of, of course, talking about Pablo Escobar, who used to own uh, Colombia's Atletico Nacional as nothing more than a PR machine and, and a money laundering operation. Of course, Escobar did mo- did make most of his money on the streets of Miami, so I guess technically he's an American businessman. Point number two, there's uh, been talk about a joint league between the, the Netherlands and Belgium. There's also now talk about a British Super League. While I conceptually empathize with Kartik's objections to a cross-border league, I kind of feel that as long as the big five leagues have the financial dominance in Europe, a merger of lower leagues is necessary to properly compete with them. Uh, I would love to see uh, Norway, Denmark and Sweden combine to create the Viking <laughs> Super League. I'd love to see Austria, uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia and Hungary combine to create the Habsburg <laughs> Super League. The overwhelming majority of the domestic leagues are de facto farm systems for other leagues, mostly the big five. So why not work together and take on the big boys? I can see I can see a cup competition. I mean, kind of a uh, Scandinavian cup competition, or a uh, uh, I don't know, like maybe like a Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland a, a cup competition among teams. Uh, like I, the old Anglo-Italian Cup. Remember those? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but as far as uh, league mergers, not not so much. No, I'm, I'm against it. I, I do. I, I am open to the idea of if it's universally uh, allowed. Where um, it would be, a, it would be a, a applied uh, equally throughout the world. But I still look. I mean, again, I've worked in the American lower divisions. I have a fondness for the lower divisions. Uh, I'm finding this actually, it's really kind of odd because there are all these Real Madrid and Barcelona fans I've now interacted with the last few weeks who have no idea that w- even w- w- 
what the Segunda is in Spain, right? Because they never have to worry about relegation. Um, I'm co- concerned still if you have these mergers, what happens to clubs down the pyramid in Belgium? What happens to the clubs down the pyramid in, in the Netherlands? And, and actually, those those clubs have some great the, – the Dutch, Dutch second and third divisions have great development structures. I think Belgium probably does too. Mm-hmm. I'm not, just sure. not as familiar with them. Uh, Scandinavia, maybe there aren't as many uh, big-time clubs down the pyramid, and it could be more feasible. But Belgium and the Netherlands I am concerned about because while it would create – Obviously, if they merge at the top, it would create a, a league with five or six really good clubs at the top that are competing in Europe uh, that are uh, because I think every single season there's there's either a Dutch team or a Belgian team that does very well in Europe. And we know the players that those two countries produce. We know how good those two national teams are. Um, but I'm concerned about teams down the pyramid in those countries, particularly in the Netherlands. But maybe in Scandinavia, as I think about it, maybe those football structures aren't as, as built out in those countries. And a lot of the clubs are newer in Scandinavia. I mean, some of the clubs are as new as the clubs in the U.S., actually. So maybe in Scandinavia. But I, I, I'm not a huge fan of it in the Netherlands and Belgium. I think it just might do too much damage down, down, down the uh, pyramid in terms of player development, in terms of club clubs uh, and their, and their ability to compete and to actually sustain themselves economically, unless structure is done in a way where they get more money out of this, which I'm not sure it would be. I think it's being done so that the top teams can be more competitive in European uh, competitions. Uh, whereas uh, that should not be the goal, in my my opinion. JP says, uh, number one, I don't, don't believe American viewers of European leagues, leagues do so, watch it, because of promotion relegation. It's all about the talent, and the talent and matches are usually higher quality than that of Major League Soccer. One feature it has over MLS that does help out a lot, though, priorities other than just winning a league title that keep the European leagues interesting until the very end. Usually, you know, it's going, uh, usually we know who it's going to, who's going to win the title before the final weeks, but the competition for Champions League and Europa League slots still makes it very compelling. Uh, a few years ago, a final match day clash of Lazio and Inter for the final Champions League spot gave it a championship game level intensity. A couple of years ago, uh, before that, it was Napoli and Lazio. You get the point. That's in addition to League Cups that can make a season somewhat successful, even without winning the title. If somehow MLS became the league all the top global talent flocked to, much like the NBA, NHL and Major League Baseball uh, for basketball, hockey and baseball, then American viewers would tune in. I I guess, Kartik, when you think about it too, I mean, the NASL in the 70s was the the top well one of the top global leagues because you had the best players from england and from germany uh from france from around the world came to play in the united states in in a really high profile league uh, i i know there were a ton of viewers tuning in uh globally to watch those games um, in the U.S., it was still early days, so the viewership wasn't wasn't massive. Well, the viewership means. was kind of high, though, in, in, in you know, relatively speaking. I mean, relatively, you yeah, get, you get a million viewers for games, um, but but there was less on. I mean, let's remember that when we say, "Oh, well, MLS is only getting three hundred thousand viewers or whatever." Now there was a lot. There were fewer channels. There was less on. Uh, at times, NASL would be the only sporting event on, maybe. Um, but I, I 
the thing I always point out, this is why I think some of these, uh, uh, even though I'm such a forceful advocate for open leagues, a lot of the pro-rel people diss me as one, I like reserve teams. Uh, I, I think it's great MLS has reserve teams in USL. I wish every MLS team had a reserve team. So they think, oh, you can't be pure open league guy if you like reserve teams. I don't know why. There are reserve teams in Spain and Germany in the pyramid. It, but they think that the pyramid has to look just like England. The other reason, Chris, is because I keep pointing out that you cannot replicate the NASL in this day and age uh, outside Europe, in my opinion, because the Bosman ruling opened the door in the European Union once Europe was integrated as one economic trading block. The Bosman rule opened the door for players to move from domestic league to domestic league in Europe. And similarly, at around the same time, the Champions League began. So um, this is taking the Premier League and Brexit out of the equation for the time being. I mean, we have to... We'll have to see long term what the impact is on the Premier League and on the and on the Football League, on the Championship, etc., from Brexit and from the new immigration rules in England. But I do not think you can get you can uh, import the amount of talent that normally would be playing in European leagues to the United States in this day and age. So uh, a lot of pro rel uh, people, reformers, say, "Oh, you're defending MLS. You're shilling for MLS when you say that." No, I'm not. I'm just saying, practically speaking, you cannot replicate that league on non-European soil. In my opinion, in this day and age, um, mm-hmm. not enough talked about, I think, just in general about the Bosman ruling and how it, it totally changed football. Yeah, yeah, that's an ex- excellent point. Uh, next up is Robert321Boom. He says, the main reason I got into English football was the promotion relegation aspects of it and the history of the clubs that are 100 plus years old that can be found in all four levels of the top four leagues. I'd love to see my Detroit Lions sent down for a few years. Um, next up is Chris uh, Guardino, and um, he says, uh, I, lo- I love the format of the pod this week because it allowed for greater participation from, from all listeners, not just the ones that listen and comment uh, all the time like myself. It is definitely something you should do more frequently. I have a question for you, either of you, about Turner Sports HBO Max. My question is, with the recent acquisition of the NHL by Turner, an inclusion of HBO Max into the deal. Do you see them wanting to add MLS to HBO Max or even becoming a player in the Premier League rights war? Uh, thanks for your insights and opinions and keep up the great great work. So as far as Turner Sports and MLS, um, I, think, I, th- I think there's a possibility. I mean, HBO Max will show some NHL games. Uh, HBO Max, which is strange though, because anyone who has HBO Max or is using HBO Max, it's great. Some great series, some great movies. Uh, no sports yet, but with the NHL, they're dipping the toe in the water. Um, I'm sure that they'd be interested. Um, whether or not um, they're seriously interested, uh, especially after kind of their uh, kind of really bit, bitter taste in their mouth after the Champions League uh, episode uh, with UEFA, may- maybe not. But um, yeah, any the Premier League. I think that's um, probably too big of an aspiration right now, uh, unless they're willing to spend a ton of money. What, what do you think, Kartik? Do you agree, or do you, do you see a possibility there? I see. That's uh, actually a, a good shot. I see a possibility there. HBO. Uh, had moved away from showing live sports. They show a fair amount of live sports, actually, back in the day, uh, including Wimbledon. I, I remember when I had to watch HBO, I had to get HBO just for Wimbledon when I was a big tennis fan. Um, the uh, th- that That's, uh, um, I think, a possibility. I mean, I think it, it, it's... Uh, 
there, there is going to be some player besides NBC to try and go after the Premier League. I'm not convinced it's going to be CBS and Paramount Plus. I know that's logical. I really? don't. I actually don't think it'll be ESPN. So, um, will it be Turner and uh, the AT and T? Right, the AT and T owned uh, uh, companies now, uh, uh, Turner, HBO, etc. Or will it be? Uh, uh, will it be Discovery? We know Discovery made a bid for uh, domestic rights in France. Uh, uh, two months ago when MediaPro collapsed, that was rejected. The French domestic rights remain right now on Canal Plus and on um, BN, uh, but it, it looks like that still might change. That situation might change. So Discovery is a, is a possible player. But yeah, I think Turner, Turner HBO, uh, the AT&T networks could be, uh, could be a player as well. And they have, uh, they have uh, lots of distribution platforms by which they could get uh, the Premier League uh, out. And uh, I think it would be culture shock for a lot of Premier League fans who have been accustomed to NBC's uh, uh, presenting on uh, on NBCSN. But with SN going away and more and more complaints about Peacock, although, again, I mean, we had this whole thing bashing uh, NBC's tone about the uh, – about the Super League and about uh, Manchester United earlier in the show. But one thing I do appreciate about Peacock, Chris, is when they do their shows on Peacock, they, they, they tend to give more time, more lead in time for analysis. They come on the air earlier, uh, which is part of why uh, Monday there was a lot that went on in the studio because they were on Peacock. So um, I, I realize viewers aren't, aren't, necessarily embracing that but that does make maybe because viewers haven't embraced it to this point it's a more viable option for the premier league to jump to somebody like turner yeah i, I still think it's espn and cbs uh, fighting um nbc for the for the rights to the premier league and i see the, the hbo max and maybe discovery plus and some of the the other streaming services looking at um mls in looking at uh, picking up some of those rights, but uh, we shall see this this summer. Uh, last but not least is Disco George, and she says uh, a few random points in response to the latest pod. Number one, regarding the MLS Supporters Shield, remember when the group that oversees it tried to essentially cancel it last year because of COVID and the regionalization of the schedule? There was a swift backlash on that decision, and we saw how many. Uh, we saw how much that trophy meant to the players, coaches, and many fans who spoke out and got it restored pretty quickly, reinforcing the old, uh, the supporter's shield doesn't mean anything trope seems off to me. And and I think in many ways it, it means a lot to Philadelphia Union in this case and, and to those fans uh, and to the players and to the coaches, um, but to fans of the rest of the league, the teams in the rest of the league, um, I think I think most of us would be hard pressed to to name the supporters shield winners uh, for the last decades. Um, I mean, it kind of goes out into the distant memory. Now, if you ask us about uh, who won the Premier League for the last decade, we'd have a, a really good idea in terms of that, uh, as well as who won the MLS Cup. But in terms of who won the supporters shield, um, not so much. Number two, I'd be hesitant to assign any blanket motivation for people in the U.S. watching or supporting soccer. Uh, even among fans of MLS teams, you, you get a wide range of people from those who have been ra- around the game for a long time and are well versed in the global context to those who might have just gone to their first game and are still trying to learn about the domestic scene, let alone understand the international aspects. It is possible for people in the U.S. to go to watch their local teams 
whether it's MLS, NWSL, USL, NPSL, etc., enjoy going to matches and following those teams and appreciate them for what they are without um, standing the league themselves, despite what a lot of the discourse around all of this seems to imply. And then finally, number three, I totally agree with the overload comments, even though I'm that weirdo who will watch a random USL game on a Friday night if it happens to be on. I have access to more games than I can watch and still be a functioning human being, and I don't even have be in sports. It's really amazing how much things have changed since I was playing U14s, and I was just stoked to be able to watch one or two World Cup matches. And uh, Disco George, again, with some really, really um, good, salient uh, feedback there, Kartik. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and I agree. And I think uh, in terms of the the uh, um, the uh, supporters' shield, the players put a value on it, uh, but I'm not sure the supporters actually do, even though, ironically, it's called the, the supporters' shield. I, I, the conversations I've had with, with players, including some that have won the supporters' shield uh, multiple times uh, versus supporters of uh, – of, 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 of clubs is, is very, very uh, different. And I think we've also tended uh, as uh, people looking back at MLS to have a, a bias towards teams that win the MLS cup. Those clubs usually do not win the supporters shield. And I was just thinking about even the era of uh, the Houston dynamo when they won uh, right after they relocated from San Jose and they won the, the title in 2006 and 2007, DC United was the best team in the league in that period. Uh, and in 2000 and 2006 ran away with the supporters shield, but we tend to forget that we tend to forget. I mean, I remember um, being concerned, that DC United was so far ahead with weeks to go that they had nothing to play for and they wouldn't be able to switch it back on in the playoffs and how really kind of unfair. That was the first time I really thought about MLS's playoff system was in 2006. I, I was, you know, I didn't mind, even though I was a fan of the European football, I didn't mind the differences before that. And it was when DC United was so far ahead under Petr Novak. Uh, and that was a team that, uh, this is a team Freddie Adu played for, actually, uh, believe it or not, but had, uh, you know, Christian Gomez and, and Jaime Moreno and, and uh, I don't, can't believe, Luciano Emilio, some really fantastic players uh, in that era of MLS. Uh, they were so far ahead for the Supporters' Shield, and then they got beat in the playoffs by New England. I thought, you know, uh, or, or was it by Chicago that year? Whatever. I, I remember thinking they lost both those years, 06 and 07. Maybe the playoffs are ridiculous and you should just award the champion also in MLS to the regular season. But uh, and now 15 years later, no one remembers those D.C. teams, but they all remember the Houston teams. And like I said, both those years, D.C. won the Supporters Shield and had the best team in the league and no one remembers them. All right, listeners, we want you to have your say. You can always reach us via email through web at worldsoccertalk.com, as well as facebook.com slash worldsoccertalk, and on Twitter at worldsoccertalk. Uh, plus, of course, you can always post your comments on worldsoccertalk.com on the website in the comments section uh, where the podcast uh, is. And Kartik, it's been a long episode, but uh, we've gone through a lot. I, I think the main point from us is the importance of fan ownership. And I, and I think that got lost in the message from NBC Sports especially um, and from CBS. Uh, they definitely, Jamie Carragher, thank God, was able to really kind of directly uh, discuss it and, and talk about uh, how um, 
You mean that that's kind of a, the main thrust of this is that the fans want their clubs back. And I think uh, we, we covered a lot of ground <laughs> in this episode, that's for sure. But if listeners want to uh, follow you on Twitter, Kartik, now that you're back on Twitter, uh, where can they find you? Yeah, KKFLA737 should have mentioned I took the weekend off from Twitter, as did so many other people who cover English football. And uh, I think for all of us, it was, turned out to be the wrong weekend to do it. Um, you know, we had we had a social media boycott uh, to, to, to make a point about uh, racial bullying and uh, racism on uh on, on that platform, you know, this season, players like Juan Bissaka and Marcus Rashford, Raheem Sterling, Raheem Sterling has dealt with it for years, um, over and over again, have been abused by fans. So uh, it was a it was an effort by everybody involved with English football, and then eventually supported by uh, people in Germany and people at UEFA level, and uh, it w- w- was was a really uh, good thing. And then. What happened Sunday happened, and none of us were on social media. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm back on social media, KKFLA737, uh, until the next uh, next boycott for whatever reason. Well, and uh, you can follow me there. All right. Well, thank you for listening. You can get a new episode of the World Soccer Talk podcast every week. Every episode is released on Amazon Music, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, Audio Boom, Overcast, and WorldSoccerTalk.com as well as everywhere else where you can find uh, podcasts. And uh, Kartik, heading into another weekend, uh, of course, a ton of football from around the world. We're getting closer and closer to wrapping up a lot of these title races uh, and much more in store. But uh, what should the listeners do? Enjoy your football. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns